everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. We are a nonprofit organization based out of West Yellowstone, Montana, that uh, advocates for the only continuously wild herd of buffalo in the contiguous United States, that being the central herd of the Yellowstone National Park buffalo. They're being mismanaged currently by uh, state and federal agencies. The campaign believes that the buffalo, as our national mammal and sacred to indigenous peoples, uh, deserve to be managed in a way that honors and respects them. Right now, if they leave the Yellowstone Park boundary, they are shot or killed, harassed, and hazed back into the park. Today on American Indian Airwaves, protecting the buffalo relations as Montana ranchers escalate killing some of the last genetically pure buffalo as they leave the Yellowstone National Park. And we'll speak with the executive director of the Buffalo Field Campaign who's leading the efforts to protect the buffalo relations. That and an update on how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting the Nez Perce Nation. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone And we want to remind listeners that we are in uh, fun drive mode here at KPFK. And uh, it is essential to support American Indian Airwaves and KPFK and support diversified voices, support the grassroots indigenous voices. And uh, later on in the program or shortly here in the program, we're going to play an exclusive uh, interview uh, with James Holt Sr. of the Buffalo Field Campaign about the ongoing intensification of ranchers. Um, Ranchers in the state kill more buffalo related. And it's voices and stories like this that we bring here on American Indian Airwaves that contribute to the larger spectrum of perspectives and diversity here on KPFK. And we want to remind listeners to support KPFK in these dire times. It's important. It's important to have alternative voices and alternative media, and we are offering The Global Police State by William Robinson uh, here on American Indian Airwaves. It's a $125 premium. It's a phenomenal book, and The Global Police State uses a variety of methods of control, including mass incarceration, surveillance, police violence, U.S.-led wars, the persecution of immigrants and refugees, and the repression of activists. Robinson shows how the global police state beyond control 
is an immensely profitable enterprise that keeps the global capitalist economy afloat in the face of chronic stagnation. And this is a remarkable uh, book that just came out. It's a $125 premium, and listeners can pick it up as a thank you gift by calling 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, or visiting the KPFK website at kpfk.org and choosing the item there, or they can become a KPFK Sustainer Circle member by making by making monthly donations on the KPFK website. You're so right, Larry. When we on the American Indian Airways talk about our show, our Native American peoples, First Peoples, Indigenous peoples, whatever you identify yourself with, we talk about the those peoples being involved with the real world, with the world around them, and we cannot help but talk about what the book talks about, Global Police State by William I. Robinson, the dynamics of the global economy, the world capitalist class, the world in which capitalism revolves around accumulation, what that means, what she identifies. And Larry, I thought was so important about this book, the spinoff and the the way in which capitalists worldwide, along with the national capitalists, they twist and turn and get like my, what the old timers used to say, the nickel and dimes. And that is to say, they take every ounce of money and energy and time to make us more suffering from their exploitation, to make them rich. Larry, it's no secret that there's more billionaires and millionaires being made under this pandemic, under this crisis, than any time else. But that's what capitalism is. The majority of people do not benefit from capitalist accumulation. The book describes that. So we want people to, as a gift, as a relevant gift for our listeners, and we have wonderful listeners, Larry, that tie into the American Indian Airways we've been doing for 30 more some odd years. And the phone number we want to pick up, this uh, your phone, and phone the number 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. If you're driving, plug it in. Wait until you're not driving. If you're uh, doing other things, have this number, 818-985-5735. 35 so you could go, go go back to or like you said larry in the internet go to kpfk that's a station and dot org you could pay this 125 dollar donation in payments and so which is really ideal larry for a lot of organizations don't have a lot of cash right now but you can spread it across a year or six months it's better for us like our good friend Corey dubin who is a, 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 a good part of the American Indian Airways and also a good part of Radio Land out there, that used to say, put your wallet where your ear is. And that being said, no matter if you're kitchen, the bedroom, no matter if you're outside, the porch, no matter if you're at work, no matter if you're driving, whatever the case may be, that plastic inside your wallet, give us a call. Ask us as you plug in the kpfk.org about supporting the American Indian Airways. And we, this interview we're going to sh- show later on and feature within the show of 
Mr. James Holt Sr. of the Buffalo Phil campaign, at the end of it, he describes what is message. I think it's a very important message. And this is the nature, the tenure of our American Indian Airways. Larry, don't you think so? Absolutely, Marcus. And I think, uh, you know, the voices of indigenous peoples are crucial, not only in uplifting their voices and help getting out the stories of struggle, right? The places on the front lines, the battlegrounds, ground zero, if you will, and defending Mother Earth. But it's also indigenous peoples like James Holt Sr. and the message that he brings, not just to the future generation, but also for future generations that is so powerful, profound, and essential in understanding where we are today and where we should be going tomorrow. And that is why the work that we do here on American Indian Airwaves is so important and why it's important to have places like KPFK within the Southern California, the Los Angeles County area uh, media spectrum. And, and, you know, the book that we're offering, The Global Police State, by William Robinson, you know, he reveals how far capitalism has become a system of repression, but he also argues that the emerging mega cities of the world are becoming the battlegrounds where the excluded and the oppressed face off against the global police state. And we want to remind listeners that, you know, that is Los Angeles County, right? Traditional indigenous uh, lands of the Tongva Gabarino, the Tataviam, the Hachiman, the Chumash, and that it's mega cities like Los Angeles that, according to Robinson, are the battleground states of the future and of the present and of the future. We talk about the global police state, the surveillance state. And we want to remind listeners, too, that, you know, two thirds to three fourths of all indigenous peoples live in urban environments. They live in these places that Robinson refers to as battlegrounds, right? The mega cities of the world. And the book is The Global Police State. It is our thank you gift for supporting KPFK. It's a $125 premium. The phone number is 818-985-KPFK, 818-985-5735, or you can visit the kpfk.org website and choose the premium there, or you can make monthly donations as part of the KPFK monthly sustainer circle. And now, Marcus, we want to go back to our programming and and, uh, uplift the voices of James Holt Sr. and the work he's doing, not only with the Buffalo Field campaign, him and his allies and supporters and community members to protect those relations, the buffalo and the interlocking relationships the buffalo have with other plants and animals in the heart of the Nez Perce Nation and the surrounding area of what is now called the Yellowstone National Park. Larry, uh, also, also, Larry, thank you for saying those words, because we also have a snippet of uh, which I alluded to in our in the conclusion of it, this, uh, this elder giving uh, profound advice to people and to our youth. But also within that discussion, we bring out what's going on in COVID-19 with that community. 
It's so true, Marcus. And now we want to play our exclusive interview with James Holt Sr. from the Nez Perce Nation. He's also executive director of the Buffalo Field Campaign. Uh, James Holt Sr. has served two terms on the Nez Perce Tribes Fish and Wildlife Commission. He served as the Nez Perce's Tribal Executive Committee, the tribe's governing body. He's also director of the Water Resources Division for the Nez Perce Tribe. And he manages several programs on behalf of the people there in the Namapo or Nez Perce Nation. And we speak with James Holt regarding the escalation by Montana ranchers who are killing some of the last genetically pure buffalo if they leave the Yellowstone National Park. And we speak with James Holt not only about protecting the buffalo, but also some of the problematic and failed management practices of the buffalo relations. And so we go to the heart of the Nez Perce Nation in the four corners of the state of Washington, Oregon, Montana, and Idaho, and how the Buffalo Field Campaign is leading the efforts to protect the Buffalo relations. Good morning. Uh, my name is James Holt. I'm the executive director of the Buffalo Field Campaign. We are a nonprofit organization based out of West Yellowstone, Montana, that uh, advocates for the only continuously wild herd of buffalo in the contiguous United States, that being the central herd of the Yellowstone National Park buffalo. Um, they're being mismanaged currently by uh, state and federal agencies. The campaign believes that the buffalo as our national mammal and sacred to indigenous peoples uh, deserve to be managed in a way that honors and respects them. Right now, if they leave the Yellowstone Park boundary, they are shot or killed, harassed and hazed back into the park. Um, That's a travesty. Tribes themselves have been taking a greater role in the management of Yellowstone National Park Buffalo and and attempting to um, establish a stronger relationship with those buffalo and you know, we're building these, these allies and seeing what they're doing on the ground. Um, hopefully, with the coming of changes in management, we can create an, enough awareness where people will begin to um, take more attention to the buffalo and, and exercise a louder voice, calling for uh, management changes that treats buffalo like they do elk or bighorn sheep or mountain goats or, or deer. I could go on. You know, there's other species that are treated like wildlife and can, can go where they want to go. They can roam where they want, but when it comes to buffalo, they're killed. And, you know, we all know that historic policy of um, taking away the the Indian's food source. So we see this as a continuation, in effect, of many of those historic policies. And, you know, we act for change, and and that's really what is at the crux of the the campaign today. Mr. Holt, you talked about in your communique that the campaign is full of energy and activity. And you also quoted the Habitat Coordinator, Daryl Beast, is fond of saying buffaloes are powerful. What do, you, what do you mean by that? What we see at the campaign, you know, we see, you know, we're so intimately involved in everything that's influencing buffalo way of life there in the Yellowstone ecosystem. And, and no matter where it is we talk about them or in what context we refer to buffalo, they create motion. You know, when we get into these meetings, you know, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of passion. People feel when they have a connection with the buffalo. When you go there on the ground, you see them. You can feel that energy uh, surrounding them. 
You're listening to American Indian Airwaves and an interview with James Holt Sr. from the Nez Perce Nation. He's executive director of the Buffalo Field Campaign, and he's speaking on protecting the buffalo from Montana ranchers as they leave the Yellowstone National Park, as well as how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting the Nez Perce Nation. And now back to the interview. The management plan itself is full of, of energy. And all of this is driven because everybody's concerned about the life of the buffalo. All these forces are coming together. It creates friction. It creates um, momentum. It depends on where you're at in that dynamic. You know, buffalo can pull you in and they can take you along with them. And, and that's really what we see historically. You know, we're, what we're seeing on the ground today is really, you know, the, the majesty and the sacredness, the of of what buffalo hold to Indian peoples, you know they were there. They were the everything for us. They provided our shelters. They provided sustenance for our bodies. You know they allowed us the tools to survive in those landscapes. And so they created that energy for us. You know they were that ceremony. You know they were the um, those dances and those prayers. You know it came to us in many ways historically, and we're seeing that um, transfer to uh, modern-day management that we see today. Yes, Mr. Holt, you said that right now that the buffalo created motion, emotion, and that from your point of view, what kind of emotions are you talking about? You work with it for many years. The campaign's been involved for many years. Share with us some of the emotions, some of the cultural aspects of that, not only from the native point of view, but from the non-native. Sure. I think most importantly, I'd like to, um, you know, speak to some of the, the native connections. Just this morning, I was on a Zoom call with an interagency bison management plan, and I was listening to my brother, as it were, Eric Holt, the chairman of the Nez Perce Tribes Fish and Wildlife Commission, and he talked about reestablishing, uh, you know, that sacred connection, you know, reconnecting to a sacred spirit. You know, that, that, that says a lot when, um, you know, we witness that gratitude for those um, treaty hunts on the ground. You know, we see that happiness and, and um, how, what that means to them. You know, we saw this last, last winter during the quarantine hunts when tribes mobilized to go over there to provide for their people in, in that unknown and uncertain future that was the, the coronavirus pandemic. So there was a lot of happiness and elation at being able to provide, provide for those elder homes, those single mother homes. Then we see the tribes that benefit from the translocation programs out of the Fort Peck and bring in buffalo to those reservations in remote areas where the buffalo have been completely extirpated from their ancestral homelands. So we know the power uh, as indigenous peoples. It's a little bit different as we carry that at the, at the campaign, for instance. You know, we're with those buffalo on the landscape. We, we daily, during, when they emerge during the winter, we see those family units. You know, we see them interact together and see the dynamic of the lead cows and, and how all the other buffalo fall in line with that to the young bulls, and we get attached to them. So when we see the ship to slaughter program, you know, we're saddened. We carry that pain of loss with us in our spirits, and, and we have just come to grips with that. This last summer, when we realized that we actually carry a lot of trauma associated with the the slaughter program, and, and it hurts, you know. So there's all of this this energy that's both good good and bad that surround the life of Brother Buffalo. You know, we're constantly impacted by the massive amounts of death that they face every year, 
and yet every year they come back looking to take their place on the landscape, looking to become that keystone species that that they are known to be. You know, that creator gave us them in, in this world, and now they're here to guide us, and they're trying to take that place. And we see these managing agencies inhibit that or limit that capability. And so, we, you know, here we are, happy and elated at the newborn calves that are born and the mm-hmm. capability of tribes to provide for their families, look to support tribal herds, but then we witness their inability to, to procreate, to, to expand on the ha- landscape, to take their place in the world, and, and it hurts. You know, we have to have ceremony just to overcome some of that, that loss. James, in, in listening to you, I was wondering, we've talked about the buffalo relation in terms of the past and present, and when talking about um, just the everyday living and breathing of culture and the work that you and the Buffalo Field Campaign are doing, how does that uh, expand or connect to future generations, so indigenous peoples uh, and their respective First Nations future generations have some sense of cultural sustainability? Yeah, it's a um, great question. Earlier in uh, last month, now early November, I got to uh, participate with uh, the Native Services Program for the Boys and Girls Club of America. And um, they came together with this theme, Be There. And so it was uh, my opportunity to showcase um, just how I took my place here at the Buffalo Field Campaign to speak for them in the landscape and to, to, um, to relate that to this modern-day context, what that means for um, you know, food security, cultural revitalization, language revitalization, food, you know, words that accompany this, this entire lifestyle. You know, for instance, the nest purses, how we view the teepee. You know, the teepee, um, when you set it up, it's set up with um, a pair of front legs, a pair of back legs. It has ribs, you know, so the teepee itself is a, is a representation of the buffalo, you know, in our way of thinking. So, you know, all of this with that reconnection to the buffalo brings all this back to the forefront. And that's one thing that I'm seeking to do with my role as executive director and being an indigenous man myself is to institute some form of youth programs, working with tribal youth to co-create these programs um, that's meaningful to them, that uh, allows them to explore and learn that Buffalo culture, history, and tradition in their own people's way and bring that and share it back to the campaign so we can then again build our our database, our resources, um, those things that we can provide the tribes as a clearinghouse, you know, similar to what the Intertribal Bison, our Buffalo Council's doing. You know, we have all these organizations doing this great work, but we're located, you know, we are one of the only places that's located right there where the Buffalo are. So we provide, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the at, at our doorstep, you can go and engage with the Buffalo. You know, we see them being born, the red dogs, in the mm-hmm. spring. So, you know, there's so much involved with um, that connection and that relationship and it's it's very interesting to me to hear from that tribal council members perspective Mm -hmm. and then from the tribal youth and like seeing how um just seeing those um, energies begin to to mix and to create this new thing you know this painting as if you will of what the buffalo relationship looks like today and how that can grow and be based in in history and based in that tradition James, uh, in terms of the Buffalo relation and their relationship with other 
plants and animals. Um, how important is that? I know from a Western perspective, right, we can state that the buffalo are, are you know, native grazers and help create and benefit healthy plant communities, and they're carbon sequesters as well. But talk about the interrelationality of the buffalo, not just between, you know, the Nez Pearson indigenous peoples, but with other plant and other uh, relations. That's a good one. You know, when we utilize that term, keystone species, you know, that so much stems from that 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 loaded term mm. i mean they do they they benefit from the soils that they that their hooves uniquely made you know different from cows and and horses how they till the soil and work the seeds in there to to um support the spread of those um those grasses the way they feed on the grasses allows for the younger budding plants to come up in a in thicker than they were before unlike other species that graze um, they benefit because of that the the prairie dog populations and, and we know some of those are like the black-footed ferret mm. are dependent on the prairie dogs which in a way are dependent upon the buffalo and the way they utilize the land so we see this domino effect of when they're absent you know we have the black-footed ferret you know being either on the endangered species act list or or being considered for it and we can go on to the bird species that um, literally live on the backs of the buffalo during the daytime and, and get all their food from digging the insects out of the buffalo's backs. Those bird species, some of them are depressed now. And so, you know, we see it from the bird species, the plant species, some of the um, on-the-ground uh, mammals, the buffalo benefit them all. And, and we see that, uh, you know, throughout the plains, you know, we can draw attention to the species that are now threatened or endangered, and, and we can draw attention to the fact that, um, you know, they would benefit from the presence of buffalo once again. Mr. Holt, you talked about the nature services and the youth programs, and also you uh, you mentioned that the nearest fierce or the Nimipu, and there that the Nimipu, I feel very excited about, they're the most local buffalo advocates, and then when you talked about the buffalo, I heard that the buffalo or the bison was a very much that the human beings reflected the buffalo life. And when you said we must honor our national mammal as a wild species, is that part of that? I, I, I say yes. I mean, what I find, you know, when I write my monthly newsletter or we get our responses from our Facebook feeds or or all these uh, social media or just interacting face-to-face -face with our supporters, constantly um, we hear that spiritual connection that even the non-Indian community has, um, you know, they've, they've established, they've been here, you know, a few hundred years now. You know, they've come to know some of these, these spirits. And, yeah, I would definitely say that as we seek to honor and establish this keystone species back on the landscape, it's because of the, that spiritual and, and intimate relationship that, that all people are, that have. You know, most recently, the Buffalo Field Campaign, our co-founder, Mike Meese, this last summer, he shot wonderful footage of the buffalo rut. Um, mm. we, we took a small clip of that, you know, one, two minutes long, and, that, and we just shared that little clip of the rut, and it went viral. And it was our first mm. viral video clip. We had 
over a million views. It went around the world a few times. And it really showed that people are tuned into the buffalo. It's it's acknowledged worldwide, and, and people want to see it flourish. So, you know, you don't get that with just a passive interest. You know, you get yeah. that with a feeling of connection, having some form of, of tie to it, a passion. In talking about the buffalo relation and their relationality with other plants and other animal relations and indigenous peoples and, and how important they are not only for, for Mother Earth, but for indigenous peoples and future generations. And in the work that the Buffalo Field Campaign is doing uh, with what is often referred to as global warming or euphemistically climate change and as a result of this intergenerational violence of settler colonialism, how crucial is the work that you and the Buffalo Campaign are doing? And then how does uh, the change of Mother Earth create a greater sense of urgency with the work that you're doing? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. It, you know, it, it really brings to mind, you know, I've, I've been in, involved with a, a few circles that are based on, you know, indigenous ceremony in spirituality, you know, we're guided by, you know, those things such as prophecy. And, and we hear these things from medicine people at those gatherings. And one of the starkest words they shared with us the last time we gathered what, was that we entered a time of uh, fire and that um, it is now too late for us to reverse it and that it'll be a time of great suffering. And now we've, like, acknowledged that we have to go back to those traditional ways and those indigenous ways and it's for practical reasons, you know, the breaking down of, of society, those, you know, toilet paper, you know, we can all relate to the lack of toilet paper, you know, and what would happen if that was something different like uh, electricity or or running water. So there's that need to, you know, get back to our traditional ways and, and we relate that back to the buffalo and the climate change that we see today and, you know, we see the research that says if things go the way they are the buffalo will have to reduce their body size by either a third or up to a half and you know can they accomplish that in this short amount of time you know that we see the world changing i'm not i don't know you know here in nespers country we also have the moose populations that are in flux Mm -hmm. because they need very cold winters and we're not getting it Mm -hmm. so they're either moving north or dying off so and, and so that that definitely concerns us when we look at that island of um, wild buffalo that exists in Yellowstone National Park and we talk about genetic diversity and population viability into the long term you know they go hand in hand we can't protect the land without having buffalo on it and we can't we can't protect the buffalo appropriately without having them on the land. And you're listening to an interview here on American Indian Airwaves on KPFK. And we want to remind you, if you like what you're listening to, to support KPFK and American Indian Airwaves by picking up a $125 premium book by William Robinson. It's a brand new book called The Global Police State. Or call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, or become a KPFK Monthly Sustainer Circle member by making monthly donations on the kpfk.org website. 
And now we go back to our interview with James Holt Sr. He's executive director of the Buffalo Field Campaign. Marcus and I recently spoke with him about the escalation of Montana ranchers' intentions to kill some of the last genetically pure buffalo that leave the Yellowstone National Park, as well as the poor management of the Buffalo relations within the Yellowstone National Park. James Holt, Sr., Executive Director of the Buffalo Field Campaign, has been one of the lead indigenous organizations on protecting the Buffalo relations. And now, back to the interview here on American Indian Airwaves. You know, we see that the emerging themes of the Park Service and their, their, their goals for management capping the amount of buffalo that can live there then we've switched that to the state, and we see the state of Montana, for instance, is, has a zero, pol- zero tolerance policy for buffalo outside of a few zones. And so in between that, we have the Custer-Gallatin National Forest that is really going to be key to the future of buffalo and their waffling. You know, the Buffalo Field Campaign has stated that we need to have buffalo as a species of conservation concern within the Custer-Gallatin National Forest so that they can begin to restore buffalo to that landscape and really provide that buffer necessary to have uh, di- you know, divergent herds to keep that genetics alive. You know, we need separation. We need um, numbers. We need healthy herds. And none of that is being orchestrated within the existing interagency bison management plan. Yes, Mr. James Holt Sr. You mentioned that on the National Bison bison day came with a lot of fanfare but yet at the same time you were critical of the governance of the yellowstone buffalo and you stated we must rewild the yellowstone ecosystem by letting buffalo roam your comments on that please yes um to rewild the buffalo uh, the landscape you know having buffalo on it will obviously require a lot of change you know we we see dormant uh, cattle allotments being considered to be opened back up and cattle put back on them, contrary to the words that the National Forest, and then if you go into the park, you know, the Park Service themselves, you know, saying one thing and doing another, not really allowing buffalo to be buffalo. We we see, oh, the, the advent of noxious weeds, you know, cheat grass the, that, um, you know, steals carbon. You know, puts it back into the air. So, so there's so many processes that really have to center the buffalo and center Mother Earth. And right now, when they're playing a whole lot of politics, catering to the cattle industry, making um, concessions when they should be wildlife-driven and science-driven. And what we see now is uh, politics often takes the place of science. And and if they were to rewild it, they would they'd be driven by the needs of the the wildlife species rather than the needs of a, a few cattle ranchers or an economy that has always been in flux. James, you mentioned about your wonderful staff. You mentioned about about your going viral, 1.3 million views, and about how um, Chuck Stone and also about the, uh, the, the staff you have. Later on, you mentioned the um, other members of your staff. Mike, for example, and all the other people. Talk about your staff. Who are they? What do they do? And how do they do it? Awesome. So I have Mike Meese, our um, campaign co-founder, along with the late 
uh, Rosalie Little Thunder back in 1997. Mm. So he spearheads all of our major initiatives, make sure we stay in line with our vision and mission statements. Uh, Chuck Ierstone just come on as our branding coordinator. He amplifies uh, the, the message that we put out on you know Facebook and Twitter and all of that. Um, we have uh, Stephanie Sayi, who's our media coordinator. She um, sends out our updates from the field and our um, updates our Facebook posts. We have uh, um, Stephanie. Uh, shoot. You got me all mixed up. We also have Stephanie, who's our office coordinator, who takes care of everything in the office, processing all the donations, the bills. We have uh, Getty, Lee Fulton, who uh, takes care of the books after the campaign, making sure all of our finances add up and making us look good at the end of the year when the 990 gets updated. Um, you know, we, we just have good folks kitchen coordinators we have gear coordinators that make sure everything's taken care of our volunteer coordinators um is is really kind of dormant this year because we have limited volunteers uh in response to the to the pandemic so we only have a few volunteers uh so we're really making it happen with the skeleton crew this year and um you know we're kind of anxious to see how the height of the season goes we're a little bit um, concerned about it, hoping that we can we have adequate staff on the ground, but you know they really make it happen for us and um, the way we've been getting the message out and getting these uh, various strategies and um, outreach efforts on on the ground and um, oh man, all the behind the work scenes that we go to, you know they're always uh, running at high speeds and and making the campaign look good. James, can you tell our listeners where we are right now in terms of the Buffalo Field campaign and some of the major players or actors that you're constantly having to address? You know, I'd, I'd really, you know, just recently I've been involved with some IBMP uh, interagency bison management plan processes, and we had an objectors meeting a few weeks ago with the Custer Gallatin National Forest, and um you know, there were some elder ladies, you know, from the East Coast and upstate New York um, as objectives on the call, you know, uh, very concerned about the future of Buffalo, um, utilizing their platform from um, upstate New York, regardless of their proximity to Yellowstone Buffalo, conveying to them just how important it was to their, in their world, even if they don't get to see him all the way. And, you know, that, that, that really hit home for me, how many people are out there supporting Buffalo from their living rooms, you know, having a very big impact um, through donations um, to the Buffalo Field Campaign or utilizing our platforms to um, become an objector, give public comment, you know, and then that goes into the tribes. Just this last month was such a huge awakening and a realization for me of just how many behind-the-scenes um, action tribes tribes are taking. You know, I could re reference the Rocky Mountain Tribal Chairmen's Association and the, the tribes that are out there in the plains utilizing their very strong voices in support of quality buffalo management. I've Just this morning I heard the Nespers Tribe uh, Fish and Wildlife Commission say that they want 5 million buffalo on the landscape, mm. not the 3,500 that the managing agencies are shooting for. 
we hear the um, Confederated Tribes of the Salish Kootenai utilizing their their um, voice to say that nothing should preclude buffalo from being listed as a species of conservation concern, that they feel that supports the exercise of treaty-reserved hunting rights. So we have all these tribes utilizing their voice in their unique way to speak for the brother buffalo. All of these forces coming together, you know, from the the Western Watersheds Project and Friends of Animals, who we often go into litigation alongside as partners, speaking for the brother buffalo in a loud way, to all these other um, consortium organizations building building their momentum as tribes are building their capacity to to manage buffalo in a better way so are all these other organizations building their capacity to speak really getting down to the brass tacks of of what the managing state and federal agencies are trying to accomplish with their goals and priorities knowing it's not speaking for the buffalo but positioning the cattle industry to reap the benefits of those public lands, those grassland allotments, you know, and and so it, it is really heartening. Even though we we're entering a time of of mass extinctions worldwide, where we're seeing this climate change having real impacts to um, you know a diversity of species, you know, we we can take a little bit of uh, solace in the fact that there are so many people that are standing, they are choosing to stand up and utilize their voice in a bigger way and, and to flock to those organizations that have a platform provided for them. Mm. You know, this digital world, this quarantine, you know, as, as hard as it has been, it has also strengthened these avenues of, of communication to show us that we can have a, an impact from our couches. You know, we can use Zoom. We can get on websites and, and write letters of public comment. We can get on phone calls. We can support those who are having a loud voice and having an impact through meaningful engagement and having people like myself funnel these disparate voices into a loud course so that we can all yell together. You know, all of this matters. There's just such great passion out there that it does give me hope. It does give me confidence that we will achieve our mission. You know, hearing the tribes and seeing how much they're doing, just seeing how many amounts of... Uh, of the public in general supports efforts like at the campaign. We just have to keep this momentum building going and create it into an even larger movement, center the voices of all those who love Brother Buffalo and, and species such as that, such as the orca, you know, the southern orca populations that need help and, um, you know, rely on salmon. I could go on to all these other um, correlations, but really I, I just see that, I just see that momentum building and that and that energy building and seeing that the park service and the state of Montana, you know, they have to go back to the existing plans and, and begin the process of, um, of changing those. And, and that's where we need to come in. We need to put the pressure on. We need to let them know that them trying to bolster these other programs that um, disrespect, dishonor and minimize the Buffalo on the, on the ground need to end. That, that we can indeed grow that population beyond that small number they they look at and really speak for all the tribes that are trying to um, exercise their relationship in a meaningful way. Mr. James Holt, Sr., you described the Buffalo Field Campaign advocacy as a vital 
and giving the wild buffalo a voice. At the same time, approximately 15% of Yellowstone buffalo are slated for, to be slaughtered this season, and 700 is a target number of buffalo to be necessarily killed, possibly even as many as 900. That is, to me, this is so different than our, the essential reason is to leave them alone. Why the slaughter? You know, this slaughter was, this whole thing was created out of a court case brought by the cattle industry against the National Park Service. That's what created the interagency bison management plan and really the misguided priority of, of minimizing the population on the landscape. All for that farce of the disease brucellosis, which they say they fear that buffalo can give to cattle. And there's never been a documented case of such, you know, unlike the elk that ran in the tens of thousands in the region, unchecked across borders that have given brucellosis to cows. Um, you know, they still don't have the hindrances that buffalo do. So we, we know it's all about access to um, grazing. We know it's all about competition for forage on public lands, you know, brings to mind that phrase welfare ranching. We know that they're getting pennies on the dollar for uh, those grazing allotments, you know, pushing out the wildlife, deteriorating the ecosystem. So, you know, that's the premise behind this buffalo slaughter when as wildlife, if they're respected, there's so much more habitat available to them, such a larger ecosystem that they can access. And, and you know, we've discussed at great length the benefits of buffalo on the landscape already you know and it, it just it really takes just that fundamental step uh in a different direction to center buffalo and you know that slaughter is a travesty and the as more and more people find out that that's really what's going on at not just yellowstone national park but others i think there would be a greater movement you're listening to American Indian Airwaves and an interview with James Holt Sr. from the Nez Perce Nation. He's executive director of the Buffalo Field Campaign, and he's speaking on protecting the buffalo from Montana ranchers as they leave the Yellowstone National Park, as well as how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting the Nez Perce Nation. And now back to the interview. Mr. Holt, you stated about the COVID-19's effect on your minimal staff at the uh, at the site. Now shifting a little bit, how has COVID-19 affect your community? Give us a little snapshot of what's going on in your country. Oh, man. Right now, the, the hearts of the Nespers people are on the ground. I've had an uncle pass away last week. His brother, who was his best friend, went to mourn and passed away himself. So I lost a, a pair of uncles last week. We lost one of our cultural icons just a few days ago. Uh, at the same time, we lost one of our shining stars of our community, a young man just a year older than me, you know. And then last week I lost a aunt, a mother figure, you know, all, then that's just the last week. Wow. And, you know, my, my live in a town of 990 people and, the Nespers tribes, 3,500 people, and so at this rate, you know, we are we are losing a lot. And if it's not if it's not um, COVID directly, it's one of those underlying conditions that they reference so much. We've had a lot of uh, 
ceremony. You know, we've had a lot of uh, communal support that went out there to the people because of uh, just the amount of trauma we're realizing because of death. You know, at the beginning of this pandemic, one of our spiritual leaders told us to brace for what's to come. And, you know, we did the best we could then. I just don't think that even that being told to prepare and brace didn't really get us ready for this amount of of loss. Our condolences to you and your family and your community about the loss. It's it's so important that you share with us some information. What are some of the lessons of the medical medical help? Some of the staff is available, not available. Um, what about that level as far as anything that you need? You can um, voice out to the public. Uh, I definitely, you know, the the things that they say to do work, you know, social social distancing, wear your mask, you know, uh wash your hands. Uh you know, those are those are important. You know, every just within our little tiny community, we could see those um spread events, you know, people going out in public and and breaking the the social distance protocols or just gathering in enclosed spaces with no masks on. We've had spread events after those and so you know it really taught us a lesson that the stuff that they're they're saying on the news with dr fauci you know those work on our local level we've seen them you know that orchestrated on the ground so you know heed heed the warnings you know put your mask on stay away from others and just do a little bit for this little bit of time and it'll ensure that more of us make it to the other side of it i think that's the important thing here is you know it's time to set our individual I don't know, you know, what we think about the pandemic, put that aside for just a little bit and think beyond ourselves. Mm. And it'll go a long way for our elders and those that that may be a little bit more infirm of health, that we can speak for them by doing what's right for ourselves and in our own households. I guess just to expand on what Marcus was saying, are you aware of, um, you know, medical equipment shortages or, or just general supply shortages that are compromising the community and the nation to remain safe uh, during the time of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, another thing that we saw in my community was the rise of a, a nonprofit organization, mm. um, COVID Home Base, run by a young tribal member here. She really marshaled the, ser- the forces of the community behind her, and a lot of donations were made. So every family that fell into quarantine, you know, they were immediately provided with a, a a list of, you know, over-the-counter medications. Um, and then we, we, we went from there. If they mm-hmm. were going to be there for the long haul, then they were given all the, the toiletries and food that you would need to be in quarantine for that length of time without having to leave your home. We know that not other communities had it like that. You know, I feel blessed that we were able to come together and support each other. You know, I don't think very many families went um, unattended during this mm-hmm. time. You know, that's one of the benefits of having a small community was where we were really able to um, fill the gaps of where the government um, may not have had the capability or the capacity to provide those services or the money to provide those items. So, um I don't know that we I, we saw a shortage of anything because of that. You know, we, we saw the usual shortages that you see nationwide with toilet paper, 
but otherwise, you know, we've, we've really protected each other that way. And the tribe is still doing what they can. They um, initiated a, a quarantine hunt is what they're calling it. So that they're enlisting tribal member hunters to go out and, and hunt and take, take their, um, their, their game to processing facilities in behalf of the tribal government who will then disperse it to the membership in need. So, you know, we're covering our bases as as many ways as we can. And luckily, I don't think that we've seen too much of a shortfall because of that mobilized effort. Please give us a sense of um, action as you're an elder, you're a senior member of your community to other Native youth or Native (laughs) nations out there. What is your message for the Native nations or the youth that are listening, both boys and girls, men and women, that are listening to your voice? I would say that... um, Now's the time. Now is the time to stand and be counted in whatever way you can. That begins with yourself, you know, to, to stand up in the morning to acknowledge that you're still here, that the the genocide against the indigenous peoples failed, that we, we can overcome and we can continually are overcoming regardless of the policies that are inflicted against us. And that includes the natural world and how we're, we're tied and so intimately a part of our our environment and our landscape and our homelands, wherever our respective tribes may be, that there's a lot to be done and that we do have powerful voices. We see that with um, the Navajo Nation, for example, and how they pushed um, people into elected office this last election round where their votes were the telltale decision factor and, and who got elected into office. That's mobilization. That's utilizing your voice. That's standing and being counted. The natural world needs that. Your community needs that. Go out into your community and volunteer. Give a little bit of your time because that's what we have. That's all we have in this world in the end is time. We have that heart beating in our chest. So we can utilize that in a positive way because each and every one of us has something that nobody else in this world can offer. We each have that unique spirit that was given to us by, by our creator, and we can utilize that energy in a good way, that we don't have to look for acknowledgement or we don't have to look for a thank you or to seek attention for that good thing that we're doing, that we can just take that before our own creator in our hearts, knowing that we've done our part. And if more of us stand together and do this thing, that we will have the energy needed, that we will have that, that power that is required to to change the course of the future, to truly begin to um, have these elected officials ad- readopt these environmental statutes and regulations that protect us all and will leave something for our unborn generations, that we can do stuff today on the ground that can speak for the buffalo, for the orca, for endangered salmon, for um, secluded elk populations up in the Thule area. You know, we can do all these things no matter where we are, and it matters because our, our Mother Earth is hurting all over in all places from all different things. And so doing one small thing in one small place, it, it matters. It'll add up. Just like the destruction has added up, so can the restoration. So can the rewilding. So can the, the restoration of our natural areas, of our peoples, of our homes. We can heal ourselves from that intergenerational trauma that has inflicted us in our elders and our people. We can heal that. We can take conscious steps forward to do that. And so that that's my message to the people is that no matter what it is, 
or how small you think it is that matters, and to stand up and to be counted and to, and to know that you do it in solidarity with people around the world from Canada, from Alaska, from Mexico and South America, around the world we see these, these voices and we see these people unifying, and it's all for the same reasons. It's, it's irregardless of nationality or race or country that knows no boundaries, and that's the, that's the way of the future, and that's the way we have to accept it now and, and walk forward as one. And I think that's the power is we are one. That's all we can be in this world, but together we are one. We can do better. We can do more. The moment of silence is over. And that was James Holt Sr. from the Nez Pierce Nation. He's the executive director of the Buffalo Field Campaign, and he's speaking on the work of the Buffalo Field Campaign in protecting the last genetic herd of buffalo that are under threat from Montana ranchers as they leave the Yellowstone National Park as well as providing listeners with an update on how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting the Nez Perce Nation. We want to remind listeners to support KPFK and American Indian Airwaves by picking up the $125 premium item, the book, The Global Police State by William Robinson. Call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK or visit the kpfk.org website and become a KPFK monthly sustainer's circle member by making monthly donations. A special thank you to our guests for the entire hour, James Holt Sr. from the Buffalo Field Campaign. For more information on the Buffalo Field Campaign, you can visit their website, buffalofieldcampaign.org. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Silence is over.